0: We are the first generation to feel the impact of climate change and the last generation that can do something about it. The streets in London were not designed for cars. The streets predate cars by a long time, but for
1: decades we have designed our city for the car. I see bad behaviours all over the place. And I suppose the question is, how how do we tackle bad behaviour?
0: The roaming distance of an average nine-year-old, not independently, is not dissimilar to that of a free-range chicken.
2: This is Generation One from University College London, turning climate science and ideas into action. Hello and welcome to Generation One. I'm Helen Chersky, a physicist and oceanographer here at UCL. Now, we humans are mobile and curious, and the modern world is full of places that we like or need to get to, the multiple places where our friends and our work and our leisure activities are. And so that gives us a practical problem on a daily basis. How are we going to move from A to B? Here in London, my solution is almost always my bike, because it's quickest, and I can hop off to walk around a traffic jam, and I get to see the city, I get to see what's going on as I cycle past... And we often hear about cycling as something that we should be doing more of for the environment, for our health, for more livable cities. But lots of people are hesitant about getting started. So this is our topic for today, cycling, why it matters, how to make the system work for everyone and what we're doing about it here at UCL. In a moment, I'm going to be speaking to two very enthusiastic cyclists who are working hard to make cycling, particularly here in London, a much safer and more enjoyable experience. But before I introduce them, I'm going to take a moment to remind you how you can get involved both in the podcast and also in UCL's climate work and campaigns. We have a website, which is ucl.ac.uk forward slash climate hyphen change. And there's all kinds of news and research and practical information there. So do have a look at that obviously we'd love it if you would rate and subscribe to this podcast wherever you get your podcasts from I share it with everyone and we're also on instagram and twitter the hashtag is ucl generation one and so you can comment and suggest future topics there um, and you can also do that by email and the email address is podcasts with an s at ucl.ac.uk and if you want to you can send a voice note and if we can include it in a future episode we will you're listening to ucl generation one turning science and ideas into climate
3: action.
2: I'm a lifelong cyclist, and there was only one time when it wasn't my default mode of transport, and that was the period when I lived in the parts of America where you really couldn't do anything without a car. Here in the UK, and especially in London, I often hear people say they would like to cycle, but... And I'm really interested in what comes after that but. If people want to cycle, what's stopping them? Is it just habit or is our cycling infrastructure not up to scratch yet? There are some cities in the world and Utrecht and Amsterdam are the most obvious examples where everyone really does cycle all the time. But it isn't magic. They weren't like that 30 or 40 years ago. They made a conscious effort to change. So how do we do the same? joining me to talk about bikes, cycling and how it all works here in London. We have two fantastic experts as normal. First up, we have Richard Jackson, who's the Director of Sustainability here at UCL. He started over 10 years ago and throughout that time has been working hard to make sure that we walk the walk as well as talk the talk when it comes to sustainability, both in the way we operate and also in the way we teach and carry out our research. And with us on the line is Dr. Will Norman, who is Transport for London's Commissioner for Cycling and walking, and it's his job to make the capital a safer and easier place to ride a bike. So, welcome to you both. So, first of all, I'm interested in your connection to cycling and how you got into it, and whether you cycle, and whether you've always been an enthusiast about it. Richard, very briefly, how what's your relationship to cycling?
1: Thank you for the instruction. I've cycled since I was a young boy. Uh, you know, I grew up in Manchester, and my parents encouraged me and my two brothers to cycle. Uh, so we cycled to school. Uh, we cycled to Scouts. We cycled all over the the town that we lived in, and so I've always feel felt connected to you know my bike. Uh, and as I've got older, the bike has become my means of, of, of moving from A to B. I feel it's a way in which I stay healthy, I stay fit, keeps my mind fit and healthy as well. I, I love being on my bike. Mm-hmm. E- equally, it's 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 worth admitting that. You know, I drive, I walk, so I don't sort of solely sort of consider myself a cyclist. I consider myself sort of a road user, and, and I think that's quite important in this context.
2: So you are definitely a hardcore cyclist from the beginning. Uh, and how about you, Will? How what's your relationship to cycling?
1: So much like
0: Richard, I, I learned to ride a bike as a kid. I still got the scars on my on my knees when I was doing overly ambitious jumps on a on a badly. Badly put together BMX in the 1980s, but I, I have to admit, sort of I took a, a, I sort of stopped cycling for a while, particularly as a student in Edinburgh. I didn't really take to cycling to begin with when I first arrived in London until. I was working for myself and I was sort of going to meet people and meet clients and and different people. And I'd always have to factor in so much time just in case there was a delay or there was traffic jams or there was buses. And I was moaning to someone about this because I'd spend an ordinary amount of time just waiting around at my destination. So I was moaning about this to a friend and they said, oh, you should try a bike. You always know when you're going to get there. And I said, OK, I'll give that a go. And it, and it worked perfectly. And so ever since then, I've been using my bike as a, a mechanism of getting around. But again, much like Richard, I'm not exclusively wedded to modern people. I've never described myself as a cyclist. You know, like most people in London, I sort of pick the right mode of transport for the right journey.
2: Brilliant, thank you. So I think so. So the important thing about that is we've got people here with cycling experience and enthusiasm, but who are not completely committed to there's no sort of hardcore, everybody should cycle all of the time here, although I have to admit that probably is me <laughs> most of the time. So let's start here at UCL, uh, which is perhaps a microcosm of the whole city. So Richard, over the time that you've been at UCL, what's what's changed when it comes to cycling? And, and have you seen changes in people's attitudes to cycling to campus?
1: Yeah, we we've seen loads of change in 10 years and I mean, I think that that change reflects the change we've seen in London. You know, we've seen more and more people want to cycle to the university and as a result of that we've seen more and more people asking us questions about the quality of the facilities we have here. Do we have good cycle parking? Is the cycle parking safe? Do we have lockers available for people to put their stuff in? Are there showers available for people changing? And where we've increased the, I suppose, the quality of the cycle parking provision, so we've got more than sort of 700, 800 places or new places for people to park their bikes, what we haven't done yet is really kind of thought about the associated facilities. So so we do have limited space here. And I think what we need to focus on as part of our next phase of developing this is some of the things that people like to use once they arrive by bike. So have a shower at work, be able to put their stuff, their cycle helmet, their, their bike panniers into a locker. Uh, so we're looking at how we provide for that around the, the, the campus.
2: So we've got a, a pattern, at least here at UCL, of more people wanting to cycle. But Will, I just want to cover one, one really basic thing, which is that we're hearing a lot about everyone should be cycling or you know, we want people to cycle more. And your job is to look at you know, the city of a whole as a whole. What we really want is transport that works. And so why do you think that cycling should be high on that list as, as how Londoners should get around?
0: Currently, at the moment, about 63% of journeys in London are walking, cycling and public transport. And we are, we've set a target by 2041 to get to 80% of our journeys walking, cycling, and public transport. And the reason for this is really addressing some of the challenges that London has, like every other major city in the world. We have an inactivity crisis. We've got the most inactive generation of kids in history. The chronic disease burden that comes from, from physical inactivity is, is astonishing. You know, if you, if, you, if you do 20 minutes of physical activity a day, you reduce all cause mortality by. By 20%. It's great for our physical and our mental health. We've got an air pollution problem. 4,000 people die in London prematurely just because of the air they breathe. And so much of that comes from pollution from the, from the cars. We've got congestion that costs millions of pounds to the economy every year. We've got road danger. You know, we, the, the, over 3,000 people are killed or seriously injured on our roads every year. And then there's also the big one, there's climate change. Uh, over 25% of our carbon emissions in London come from road transport. So we have to do everything we can to reduce the number of car journeys and increase the amount of sustainable journeys, walking, cycling and public transport. I could drone on about this for hours because there are no shortages of good reasons why more of us should use our bikes more often.
2: OK, so what I'm interested in and what I'm always interested in in this discussion is that... There's lots of logical reasons for people cycling lots, lots more. And yes, it doesn't happen. And so what I'm interested in is what you hear about what is stopping people from cycling, because this might, I mean, it could be actual experience. It could be perceptions. It could be practicalities that, you know, no one's dealt with. So, so Will first, what stops people from cycling in London at the moment?
0: It is very clear what the biggest barriers are for people to, you know, use their bikes more, get on a bike, try cycling. And that is feeling safe that is partly actual safety because some of the roads are are dangerous and, and are not designed for bikes or there are perceptions of safety. For every group that we've surveyed, interviewed, and done research on, has repeatedly come up. It's about how do we make our roads and our streets safer for people to cycle? And lo and behold, where we do deliver the bike lanes, what we see is a lot of people using them, a huge uplift in, in usage. So the sort of old adage, build it and they will come, is, is true. You build the bike lanes, people use them. And this is shown repeatedly, time and time again.
2: It is something that's very noticeable to me that whenever I mention, because there are more and more cycle lanes in London, as you say, and it's very noticeable to me that whenever I, you know, often people who don't cycle go, oh, well, there are no cycle lanes. And and I go, oh, there's, there's loads, they're everywhere. And then they come back to me three days later and go, oh, they really are everywhere. I just hadn't seen them. And I think it's quite interesting because you don't, lots of people don't see cycling infrastructure unless they're on a bike. And so it's kind of hard to convince them that it exists because they haven't seen it. Sort of because their brain wasn't looking for it. Um, Richard, from the university's point of view, what can universities do to help? You know, you mentioned a few things, but what are the what are the things that have really made a difference?
1: So, so a lot of the stuff that we try and do is, is firstly, provide the right facilities, which I've already mentioned. The, the, the second thing is then think about how do we provide the right information for people. You know, so from everything like how do I get a bike, where do I get it from, uh, we try and make secondhand bikes available, but we also point people in the direction where they can get some, you know, cheap bikes so they can move from A to B. And um, we're we're keen to kind of give people maps. So, so it's really important that people know where those safe streets are, where the quiet routeways are, where the cycle lanes are what we find at the start of term is that in fp some people really want to cycle but as will said they feel they've got a perception that it's unsafe on the roads they're not sure on the right routes to take so what we trialed during the covid the start of the covid pandemic was a series of of bike buddies we found volunteers within ucl who would who were confident cyclists who would be happy to kind of cycle up or buddy up with somebody and cycle them into campus and and what this does is start to build people's confidence and you know i think there's a lot of things we can do to kind of just get people's confidence on the road i think as a culture we've moved away from a sort of a culture of cycling if that makes sense you know when i grew up i had a bike but everybody i knew had a bike it was the means by which me and my friends would get around what's interesting between the uk and say amsterdam is amsterdam and the, the netherlands they have this culture of cycling where it's, it's second nature to kind of just travel by bike all around so so yes we need to address the the perception of safety but we also need to think about how do we build this kind of this into our culture that from the very earliest age we want to kind of have a bike we want to get around by bikes
0: yeah I, richard I, I agree with that i, I think it 's interesting. You mentioned the amsterdam piece amsterdam wasn 't always like that in one thousand nine hundred and seventy it was as car dominated and as 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 London and yet they went through this change, you know, partly sparked by the oil crisis, partly sparked by a really tragic death of a young person and mums campaigning for change. But they changed the way that the city operates and they made those streets safe so that cycling could become second nature. And, uh, you know, Copenhagen, same thing. They had a crisis with their, uh, their economy and it was actually cycling was the cheapest transport infrastructure that they could put in when the city was on the verge of bankruptcy. And so, you know, there is a there there is, there's precedent here from other cities that actually you can change this culture and I think this is this is this is exactly what is beginning to happen in London I do agree with you that, that children you know we know from all the behavioural science that these patterns and, and habits are formed early and so giving early positive experiences for children of being physically active cycling walking uh, is is absolutely essential you know, the, the, the sort of role of how you get to school is important. And sadly, you know, because of the dangers of road danger, pe- the roaming distance of kids is reduced. You know, somebody told me, I don't know if it's true or not, but it's a good story that the average roaming of... A, the roaming distance of an average nine-year-old, not uh, independently, is not dissimilar to that of a free-range chicken. And so we, we really need to extend beyond free-range kids.
2: OK, so we're coming back to this thing basically about roads, about what a road is, and this idea that there is a perception that has been in this country, certainly a perception that a road is a place for cars. But actually, what a road actually is, and the Highway Code backs this up, is it's a shared space for vehicles, for people who want to get from somewhere to somewhere else. So, Will, how do we approach the the organisation of sharing this space?
0: Well, you're right. You know, the, the streets in London were not designed for cars. The streets predate cars by a long time. But for decades, we have designed our city for the car. And what we are doing in the process of doing now is thinking, actually, you know, what we need to do is design for people. For new streets, that's quite easy, where you've got new developments, you put in the facilities to, to put in bike lanes and, and what have you. You know, the challenge here is retrofitting this into existing infrastructure. And, and that involves making sure that, you know, there has to for a functioning city to, to, to operate, we need freight, we need transport, we need our construction trucks coming in and, and sorting, sorting things out. Part of this is about making sure that the balance is there, that the buses still operate, that the, you know, freight can get around, essential car journeys can still move around. But a third of all car journeys in London are less than two kilometres. Now that's a huge potential for driving a mode shift to, to cycling, to walking. And what we need to do is be able to change the streets so that enable people to make that choice for those, journeys that make most sense particularly the local ones in local areas.
2: So could you just describe specifically for people in London what features are we talking about that are there now and what will be coming in the future?
0: So people you know as you said if you look out for the cycle infrastructure you'll see um, their green cycle way signs which direct people around. There are separate uh, lanes on on roads, either separated by curbs or by magic wands, the wands, the plastic bollards that, that keep uh, cycle, cyclists safe. So on the main roads, they'll see that sort of thing. On some of the quieter roads, there's a matter of how do we reduce the traffic along those routes so that it's safe enough for people to cycle. And that's been done through filtering, uh, by putting in planters, through making streets accessible through only one way so that you don't necessarily get the cut-through traffic along along these routes. And the combination of those those in, uh, changes to, to the road Roads on the main roads and the local streets are I- exactly what you'll see. And then there's also making the junctions safer. And the junctions are probably the most difficult piece to do, but the most important piece to do, because 80% of collisions happen at junctions. So people will be seeing advanced stop lines for bikes. The little traffic lights that are positioned at a cycle level that gives the, uh, the bikes their own time to get through a junction safely before they're mixing with, with larger vehicles. So it's that sort of change that we're rolling out in London
2: so richard i want to ask about you know your experience as a cyclist on the roads and this there is often this perceived to be this tension between cyclists and drivers and drivers and cyclists what tensions do you see and whose fault are they <laughs> or how could they be improved
1: <laughs> I, I, it's really interesting this i see bad behaviors all over the place and i suppose the question is how, how do we tackle bad behavior so that we can kind of get better behaviors um on the road whether you're a cyclist or whether you're a driver again i've thought a lot about this you know i think part of this starts from when you you first experience the road so so come back to my own experience i did a cycling proficiency as a, as a six year old i loved that i loved the, the sense of earning a certificate to give me validity to ride my bike but actually where has cycling proficiency gone you know i know it's still offered by some local authorities but actually you know why is this not sort of more widely offered The second thing is about, I sort of like the the way we use, I think, sort of the the, the driving uh, test. Uh, At the moment, I think the driving test is very much about how do you get in a car and drive your car competently. I do wonder whether actually we we should start to uh, broaden that out. So actually, as you take your driving test, you begin to experience other modes. When you're aware of, of being a cyclist and you're sitting behind the steering wheel of a car, you pull out for it further because you're conscious of how it feels when somebody close passes you you know i think when people haven't had that experience you know inevitably they do things which actually a cyclist might feel threatened by and, and it leads to real tension between the you know the cyclist and, and the driver and i think there are things we can do which can overcome that
2: well, I'm interested in this this question of education. You know, the highway code changed recently. Was it kind of came out slowly in bits and pieces? It was slightly strange the way the media story around it happened. But 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 that's an attempt at educating road users for a new way of thinking about roads so how are we doing with that in London you know are people changing their behaviour and what what education do we need here
0: the highway code is not a silver bullet on this it sets a framework and it sets out the rules but when was the last time you or Richard ever read the highway code I I you know I, I have, have to I hop
2: by hand up here I actually did read it I read the whole thing the new one when it came out and I felt like <laughs> such a geek for doing it
0: <laughs> well, I'm very pleased you <laughs> did but I think you might be in a minority you know most people I talk to haven't read the highway code since they passed their driving test and so therefore I think this needs to go way beyond just highway codes and that, and that education I think Richard's right teaching kids and and we offer Bikeability, which is a bike training for all kids and all adults free of charge through London boroughs so if people want to learn to ride their bike. They can go on and get some bike training. They should get onto the TFR website and they can find out more about that. But it goes way beyond just training up cyclists. This is a whole culture on the roads. And, you know, from my perspective, there is, I think, there's quite a lot of aggressive behaviour on the roads historically because the roads have been aggressive. Aggressive places create gri- a ag- ag- spark aggressive behaviour and it comes back to making those spaces safer. And I think scaling back the language and some of the, the way that this is presented in the media is, is important because ultimately we're all just people trying to get around the city and uh, and get on with each other.
2: So Will, one of the big trends of the past few years is, is the rise of what has been called micro mobility, which is not just bikes, but tricycles and electric unicycles and scooters and e-cargo bikes and electric skateboards. And some of those, um, particularly the scooters, are not actually legal on the roads at the moment, unless it's a specific scheme. So how do all of those overlap with cycling and cycling infrastructure? Like how do we share all this space between all this this myriad of different things.
0: Some of this stuff is having a wonderful change in the city. You know, the e-cargo bikes are taking freight off the roads, which is, which is good for everybody, getting kids to school. You can see this whole change that's happening there. But you mentioned e-scooters, and they've been really quite controversial. And, you know, it's, it's a very strange situation. It's very clear that the situation at the moment is just simply not working. It's, it's legal. You can go to Halfords or other shops to go and buy one, but it's illegal to use that on a public road, which is, you know, this lack of regulation is is madness and and i think is leading to a lot, lot, lot of the problems here because of the lack of regulation e-scooters can come in all shapes and sizes you know i was out with the metropolitan police the other day and um some of these things can do 60 miles an hour currently in london we're uh, we're doing a trial so we've got permission from the government to do a trial which is testing approaches to try and make them safer so the speeds are capped at 12 and a half miles an hour we've got brakes we've got number plates you need a a driving license or provisional driving license to be able to hire them and what we're seeing from the outcomes of those trials is that these we're seeing far fewer injuries and far fewer problems with that and so I do think that what we need to do is sort out the government very clearly needs to sort out the legal situation here because it's not working we can't enforce the law as it currently stands there are too many of them they don't have the police resources and we can't uninvent them so the only way forward is to make them as safe as possible and in London we're trialing this to try and figure out well what are the best ways that, that we can make them as safe as possible and then what role can they play in the urban transport system
2: So because we don't have an infinite amount of time and podcast listeners probably have something else to do at some point, I'd like to come just to one final question to both of you, which is what are the sort of misconceptions about cycling that you most often hear or myths that you most want to correct? You know, what are the things that you feel you you wish you could walk around with wearing a T-shirt saying, think this instead of that? Richard, do you want to go first?
1: I really wish you'd not put that question to me first.
2: (laughs) Uh... mean like that.
1: (laughs) i think despite what we see and uh, i'm reading in in the papers i I think the first thing is is uh, is to address this misconception about safety yes there are dangers on the road uh, for for all users but uh, but i do think with the measures that tfl are driving forward and also kind of what we're seeing with more people using bikes i think we're, we're beginning to see safer environments for cyclists so I do think it's it's a safe environment out there. I think some of the quiet routes, I uh, have to say, uh, are brilliant. Uh, and this is from somebody who's recently sort of moved eastwards. So I come in on on the quiet route too, and it's such a perfect way to to arrive at work. I don't have too much conflict, which actually means I don't kind of come really angry into the office. It's nice and smooth. You know, it's it, there's there's very very few major roads to cross. So there's been a lot of thought around where some of these routes are. And, and so, therefore, I encourage as many people as possible to get on their bikes and try the quiet routes to cycle around because it's a great way of kind of moving around the city.
2: Will misconceptions or myths that you hear?
1: Well, I wish I had gone first on that one because,
0: <laughs> <laughs> like, like Richard, I think the safety one is absolutely essential. You know, there is a, a misconception that cycling is unsafe. There are risks doing anything, but it is safer than ever before to, to ride a bike. Statistically, in you know, London is getting safer by the day as we roll out this emission. But um, I think the other the piece that I, I want to touch on is some, some of the new technologies. You look at what's happening in other countries. In Germany, something like half the bikes that are sold are electric bikes. And for people who might be a bit older, for people who might not necessarily want to arrive sweat in the office, I want to sort of shatter this myth that electric bikes are somehow cheating or they're somehow lazy. There's this bizarre misconception in London or in the in the UK, British culture seems to think oh e-bikes you're you're cheating. You know these are pedal assist. You still have to pedal. You get 80% of the physical activity. They're a great way of getting around. And I would I would want to bust the myth that e-bikes are somehow somehow cheating. They're a brilliant way of getting around and they allow an awful lot more people to try cycling.
2: That is great. Well, there's a whole separate episode on e-bikes that we haven't got time for. But anyway, um, and the one thing actually, I would, I'm going to let myself add one here a little bit, which is, first of all, I everyone said it, have a go. If you don't cycle, have a go. But also, I think people underestimate, if you use Google or some mapping thing and you tell it you're on a bike, it will. you don't have to go looking for these, these routes, these quiet routes and the cycle lanes. Google knows where they are <laughs> and it will do the work for you and you will discover things you didn't know existed. I I don't need Google to navigate around the city, but I use it because I find things I didn't know were there, uh, cycle paths. And I think that's great. So thank you very, very much to my two guests for today, Will and Richard, for being very enthusiastic about cycling and the things that are happening in the city. Lots of reasons to be optimistic for the future, I think, which is great. So thank you to both of you.
1: Thanks, Helen. Great. Thanks, Helen.
2: You're listening to UCL Generation One turning science and ideas into climate action. We're just about to get Mark's roundup of all the climate news stories that you need to know about this week. But just before that, just want to spend a moment to encourage you to get involved in the podcast and UCL's climate work. You can find all about that at ucl.ac.uk forward slash climate hyphen change so you can rate and subscribe to the podcast we'd love it if you do that do send us some feedback send us comments and questions to the email address podcasts at ucl.ac.uk and do connect to us on twitter and instagram but now it's time to join mark maslin for the climate news roundup
3: And so to the climate change news, starting the week of the 30th of May, 2022. In Paris, a 36-year-old man dressed as an old woman jumps out of a wheelchair and smeared cake onto the glass screen protecting the Mona Lisa painting. He then threw roses everywhere. The man is purported to have said, there are people who are destroying the earth. All artists think about the earth. That is why I did this. He has been arrested and placed in psychiatric care. Equally bizarre, last week, Penguin Random House published Alex Epstein's book called Fossil Future, which basically plays down the impacts of climate change and suggests that fossil fuels are the solutions to all the world's issues. The book conclusions are not supported by the scientific evidence and there are many places where it attempts to mislead the reader. So bizarrely, Penguin had published a climate change denial book. In Australia, Labour secures a majority government in what people have dubbed the climate change election. Labour, the Greens and the Teals were all campaigning for strong action on climate change with higher targets. The preferential voting system opened the pathway for independence to bypass the right-wing hyper-partisan approach to climate policy and led to a tectonic shift in Australian politics. Government enforcers around the world are on the hunt for companies making misleading claims about their so-called eco-friendly products. In the UK, the Advertising Standards Authority is proposing to warn HSBC about their false advertisement of their so-called green accomplishments. While in the US, the Federal Trade Commission has fined retailers Walmart and Coles for marketing dozens of Raylon textile products as being made from eco-friendly bamboo. Well, that was the climate news from bizarre art to even more bizarre denial books, to Australian positive politics, to the stirring of powerful financial watchdogs worldwide to root out greenwashing. Thank you for listening.
2: That's it for this episode of Generation One from UCL, turning climate science and ideas into action. Thank you very much to my fabulous guests, Richard Jackson and Dr. Will Norman. And don't forget to leave a comment and rate us wherever you get your podcasts. The final edition of this series of Generation One from UCL will be available next Wednesday, when my co-host Mark Maslin will be talking about how climate change is increasing the number of natural disasters and what we can do to mitigate them or avoid them altogether. But goodbye for now.